0: If he joins us, he can uh, join us a little bit late. I don't think he has any about that. Okay, we're going to do guided wave optics. Um, I posted this, I think, last night. So hopefully, if you prefer to have your notes ahead of time, you've had a chance to check the website since then. Um, guided. I should maybe step back and uh, remind you that sort of what we're doing in this course is um, looking at what happens in optics when epsilon is not constant, when the permittivity is not constant. And we've seen that in a number of different ways. We've seen when the permittivity is not constant as a function of orientation, and that gave us, that was crystals, that was propagation and isotropic materials. When epsilon is not constant versus time, then we had all sorts of modulation effects, so acousto-optic and electro-optic effects causing that. Um, and now we're going to look at Epsilon not being constant in space, uh, which we already had last time with uh, layers and periodic materials, and now we're going to have the, um, the the change in epsilon being in the transverse direction instead of the propagation direction, and that gives rise to waveguides. So in part, waveguides are a natural part of this class because they deal with sort of this uh, non-uniform permittivity of a material. But they're also really important practically because a lot of the effects that we've discussed are relatively weak effects um, that in order to get sort of a measurable or a useful amount of modulation or um, birefringence or whatever effect you're trying to, to, to utilize in some application, you need long interaction lengths, large voltages or large drive signals. And so confining the light into a waveguide gives you a couple advantages. One is that you can have long interaction lengths without the diffraction of the light, causing your light to, to, to clip on the edges of your, your devices. And the other is that a number of our effects, um, which were driven by uh, the electro-optic effect, which is driven by the electric field, comes from voltages applied to a material, uh, to some electrodes. And the amount of the electric field scales linearly with the voltage and inversely with the separation of the electrodes. So if you can confine your light into very small, meaning on the order of a micron, uh, waveguides, then you can place electrodes very close together so that a moderate voltage can produce a very large electric field. So modulators and uh, well, modulators inside of waveguides can be much more efficient than they can be if, if built in bulk optics. Okay, so this is a picture of some waveguides, and typically... The way they're produced is by lithographically patterning them on a lithium niobate or a silicon wafer. And so these lines, at one point, were um, lines drawn with either an inkjet printer or some sort of uh, device that produced a mask. And that got lithographically transferred into the material. We'll talk a little bit about how that happens a bit later. But what's really powerful here is that you can uh, design the waveguides sort of digitally on a computer. Um, The geometry, the shape, everything that you need to uh, go into patterning these then can be transferred uh, sort of uh, directly into the material, so you have very good control over uh, precise tolerances and and separations and widths and a number of parameters that will affect the behavior of the waveguides. And they can be made very small, which means you typically generate uh, arrays of devices and either. Uh, make them with slightly varying parameters, so that you can find one that works optimally for your application, or so that you can have multiples in case you break one, or you need more than one. Okay, so to understand what goes on in a waveguide, it's a lot like what goes on in fiber optics. Um, so if you've if you've uh, investigated fibers before, um, I know we did that in one hundred and fifty-eight. What goes on in waveguides is the same thing. It's light guided by um, can think of it as total internal reflection at a surface, where you go from high index to low index. And so if you have that type of interface and light coming in at an angle greater than the critical angle, it will totally internally reflect, bounce back and forth and be guided in the high index core. That being said, uh, waveguides, the way they're made, um, doesn't necessarily lend itself to having a, a discrete interface between two different indices so we'll see there's often a a smooth transition okay so it's a useful picture to think about the rays bouncing around back and forth but it only takes us so far so start with that um, try to understand a few of the requirements for propagation through a waveguide and then generalize it to uh, to a more general case where we don't have these discrete um, these discrete boundaries so let's consider a one-dimensional waveguide so think of this uh, region right here as a slab bounded on the bottom and top by some sort of uh, lower index material. And I'm calling this the core. So it has an index of n sub c. And the material above and below is the substrate that it's on. So I'm calling that n sub s. And we'll let the transverse dimension of the waveguide be d. And we'll consider a ray that propagates into the waveguide and has a direction defined by this arrow. Then it's useful to think about both the ray and what its wavefront are doing. So the wavefront associated with that wave is orthogonal to the ray direction. This red sketched line represents a wavefront. A wavefront is (coughs) regions in space contiguous regions in space of constant phase. Okay, so this ray is going to bounce back and forth many times as it propagates over some finite distance. And at some point in space, we can think of the uh, electric field there as being the superposition of that from Say this ray, this ray propagating out at point C and this ray propaga- propagating out towards point A. So there's multiple rays um, that each have wave fronts that have to add up constructively to produce a propagating mode. Okay. And so that requirement means that um, if we look at, let's say this wavefront over here, the distance from point A to point C has to be the same as the distance from point A to B in order to get the same phase at these two points, or the distance from A to C has to be some integer multiple, some integer number of wavelengths greater than the distance from A to B in order to get the same phase at these two points modulo 2 pi. And that requirement leads to a a constraint on the allowable angles of the rays that can propagate through this waveguide. So that requirement is written here. So in the core, the k vector is n sub c times k naught, And that k vector times the distance is a phase. So going from A to C, minus the phase from A to B, that's the path length difference, has to be some integer multiple of 2 pi. And if there's also a phase shift upon reflection, which in general there is, then we have to account for the phase shift that the light gets reflecting here, and then reflecting down there. So we have two phase shifts on reflection as well that that get accounted for. You can derive the phase shift on reflection by considering the boundary conditions uh, and Maxwell's laws. We're not going to do that. Uh, We have better things to do today, so you can look that up. Anywhere that you find a reference to Fresnel reflection coefficients, they generally will tell you the amplitude reflectivity. But there's also a a phase change associated with that. So you can find this phase shift in the literature, meaning in your textbook. Um, where the Fresnel reflection coefficients are derived. And so, if we try to include this phase shift into this constraint, what we find is that we end up with this transcendental equation. What we'd like to be able to do is solve it for theta to say these are the angles for rays that can propagate in the waveguide and produce a mode or have. Another way of saying that is rays that propagate at an angle which satisfies this equation, those rays, all the different reflections from the top and bottom surfaces, will all add up constructively at any point in space. And if if this constraint is not met because the angle of the ray is different, then the multiple reflections from all the different bounces will not add up constructively. They'll all have different phases. If they all have different phases, when you average enough of them, the average to zero. so This waveguide will only accept light at particular ray angles, okay, in the ray picture. Finding those angles is a matter of solving this transcendental equation. So we can't isolate the theta and solve this. Um, it's tangent of something times sine theta. So the best we can do is to n- numerically solve this. You can plot the left side plot the right side versus theta and look for points where they intersect. And that's here, so the left side is plotted in green, the right side is plotted in magenta, and points where they intersect. I think this is being plotted versus sine theta, not theta. Okay, but points where they intersect, you can read off on the graph then the value of sine theta, that corresponds to, and therefore the, the value of theta. And your book calls that the bounce angle. Um, I'm calling it the, so the book calls it theta sub b. I'm calling it theta sub m. It's the angle for the mth mode. So the first solution to this self consistent equation, we'll call the m equals one solution. And it represents the angle for what we'll call the first mode of the waveguide. And then there, are higher-order solutions, which we'll call the m equals 2 and m equals 3 solutions. Those correspond to rays at steeper and steeper angles. And eventually you can't get steeper. Uh, so this... I don't know whether this is sine theta equals 1 or just... must just be uh, this term maxing out, but... Um, I guess this must be sine theta equals 1. I can't read the graph, but... So there's a limited number of solutions, meaning there's a limited number of modes that can propagate in the waveguide. So you can find or estimate the number of modes um, by recognizing that this, the left side of the equation, is going to be periodic in sine theta equals lambda over 2D. Every time sine theta increases by lambda over 2d, the argument of this function increases by pi over 2, and tangent is periodic in pi over 2. So this green function repeats every, I I guess it's repetitive in pi, so it repeats every lambda over d. So this distance is lambda over d, And the number of lambda over d's that you can fit in a sine theta is approximately the number of modes you'd expect to have. Okay, So the number of lambda over d's, or the value of sine theta measured in quantity of lambda over d, gives you the number of modes. The maximum angle you can have, though, is limited by the critical angle. When the angle exceeds, let me go back to this picture. When this angle exceeds some value, then you don't get total internal reflection there. So you get some number of modes. Um, generally, if you evaluate this expression, you get some. Some numeric value, but the number of modes should be an in integer. So that's what the ceiling function does. So it rounds it up. And we can relate the sign of the critical angle to another parameter that's often used to describe waveguides or, or fibers, which is the numerical aperture. So you'll often see this written in terms of the numerical aperture instead of the, the angle, the critical angle. So the reason we round this up instead of rounding it down is because we always assume that there's one possible mode, and that's the mode that goes straight through. And that wasn't accounted for in our, in our uh, calculation of the, the modes because we assumed that they were bouncing off the sides. Okay. Now, let's look at the mode picture instead of the ray picture, or the electric field distribution, instead of just the direction that the rays are traveling. Let's consider our waveguide as being some substrate with some higher index core. And let's look at Ampere's and Faraday's law inside the material. we can write well we can say that there's no free current so j goes to zero the electric displacement we can write as epsilon e and epsilon we can write as epsilon naught times n squared so if i replace d with epsilon naught n squared e i can rewrite this in a form that depends on the index of refraction, which is not uniform. Right? It's it's a function of position. It's different in the core than it is in the substrate, so I I denote it as n squared of or n of x and y squared. And because we have the curl of this quantity, that's going to, that spatial variation is gonna is going to uh, be important in determining the magnetic field. Um, So if I assume solutions that are uh, phasors propagating along z and solutions that have a particular field distribution in x and y that I'll call u. So u is the normalized transverse profile of my solution, my my wave solution, E naught is the amplitude with some polarization, then this is a wave that's propagating along Z, but has a a wave form or a shape that's not changing along Z. So whatever its shape is in the transverse direction is not changing as a that's what it means to be guided. It's not spreading out due to diffraction. And likewise, we can write the magnetic field in terms of the same, same uh, mode amplitude. So this term here, which I've called beta, and that's the, the, common, the common way to express uh, this propagation constant in a waveguide, It's really just the z-component of the k-vector. That's the component of the k-vector along the the axis of the waveguide. So we can go back to the wave equation. And we can plug in our trial solution here the transverse dependence is entirely accounted for by this u. The longitudinal dependence is in this phase factor with the beta. And so when we take the Laplacian, we get, um, in the transverse direction, We get, um, I didn't write that as clearly as I should have. Um, Let me write this on the board. So for this form of a plane wave, the phase factor into a transverse component, I'll explain this uh, terminology in a second. and a longitudinal component. Let me make sure I've got the sign I don't. Call that a minus sign. Minus omega t. So I've got my propagation constant in the longitudinal direction is beta. And in the transverse direction, I'll just call it alpha. So r sub t represents the transverse coordinate. Or if you like, I can use cylindrical coordinates, R and Z. I'll alpha R. So the laplacian is E. when I have a phaser that I'm taking the, Lapl- taking the spatial gradient of, I pull out a minus IK each time I do that. And in this case, my k is broken into a transverse and a longitudinal part. So my Laplacian has a component from the transverse component of the propagation constant and the longitudinal component. Time derivative is just going to have minus omega squared. T. Still the, uh, mu yeah. Epsilons. And I'm gonna write the mu epsilons as um, One over the phase velocity squared, which is phase velocity is C over N, and my N is a function of X and Y. Okay, so this first term here. Is from the time derivative. These next two terms are from the spatial derivative. Okay, so. So my field distribution in x and y, I can write as the sum, I can just do a Fourier expansion on that, It's the sum of various frequency components, so spatial frequencies. And this is a sine wave, this is an oscillating wave in the transverse plane at frequency alpha-naught this is the amplitude of that sine wave. If I add up all possible sine waves, then I get any arbitrary function, as long as I have the proper weighting for the amplitudes of the sine waves. Okay, so I can write my transverse profile in terms of normal modes. And when I do that, then I can say, well, in the core, this transverse profile may be made up of of sine waves. But in the substrate, where the wave is not supposed to be, the wave is supposed to be in the core, not the substrate. So in the substrate, um, this amplitude should decay as I get far away from the substrate. So as x squared plus y squared gets large, this term should get small. And what that means is alpha has to be imaginary in the substrate. If alpha is imaginary, uh, the i from here and the i from there give me a minus sign. And I get an exponential decay far into the substrate. OK, so if alpha is imaginary, if we look at this expression here, this term in parentheses has to equal 0 in order to have a non-trivial solution. So if alpha is imaginary, alpha squared is negative, minus alpha squared is positive. So if this term is positive, that means beta squared has got to be larger than this. All right? Because beta squared is equal to This minus this, this is a negative quantity. So this plus some quantity. So beta squared is larger than this. Um, So in in the substrate, beta squared is larger than this, because alpha squared is negative. So beta squared is larger than this quantity evaluated in the substrate beta squared has to be larger than omega squared over c squared times n-substrate squared. What made first assume that Um If I write my field distribution as a uh, Fourier series, yeah. here's that Fourier series. This is the oscillation in the transverse plane. This is the amplitude. So this oscillatory function. In the substrate, needs to, it can be oscillatory in the core, but in the substrate, it needs to be exponentially decaying, okay. and that requires alpha not be imaginary. Um, I've got a picture in two slides that, that explain this in what I think is a little clearer terms. So I'll, I'll save the uh, elaboration on this until then. Um, in the core, we have the same the same uh, result from the wave equation, but in the core. Um, we have a different argument for what alpha squared should be. Um, In the core, whatever our um, wave profile looks like, its maximum value should be in the core. If it's exponentially decaying in the substrate and the field is supposed to be contained in the core, then its maximum value should be in the core, meaning there should be a point that's a local maximum so that the gradient of the electric field is zero. And if it's a maximum, then the Laplacian should be negative. Okay, so we have substrate, core, substrate. And the field should be decaying exponentially into the substrate. And the core, we can have some oscillating field like that. We can have different frequencies. We could have a single hump or many humps. But there should be a maximum at some point. All of these different modes, have some maximum. And that maximum has a gradient that's 0, and has a curvature, which is negative. What it means to be a maximum. So, if that's the case, if the curvature is negative, the Laplacian in the transverse direction is just alpha squared. So, alpha squared should be. Less than 0 in the core. That's giving me what I had before. That doesn't make sense. Because the Laplacian is minus alpha squared. There's an error in the notes. Our Laplacian is minus alpha squared minus beta squared. So minus alpha squared should be less than 0. Alpha squared should be greater than 0. Another way of saying that is we shouldn't have an exponential decay. We should have oscillations. So if alpha squared is greater than 0, then beta squared has got to be less than this term evaluated in the core. So beta squared is less than that term, where we evaluate the index in the core. So we have these two constraints on what beta is, the longitudinal propagation constant. It's got to be greater than this and less than this value in order to have, in order to have a waveguide. But there can be many different values of beta. Um, We started with the self-consistency equation, and when we plotted the left and right side, we got several solutions that corresponded to different ray angles. So what's the relationship between beta and those angles? If that's theta... And we have a k-vector propagating at that angle. Beta is just k cosine theta, It's just the longitudinal component of the k-vector. So there's only certain ray angles that are allowed. That means there's only certain thetas that are allowed, meaning there's only certain values of beta that are allowed there's discrete values of beta, they all have to satisfy this constraint. And I think this picture, uh, at least to me, it makes more sense. I can look at a ray propagating at some angle theta, and it's in the core. So its k vector has a length Nc k0, it has a transverse a transverse component that I'm calling alpha sub c, a longitudinal component that I call beta. So beta and alpha are the components of that k vector. In the substrate, the k vector is different. It has a different length because there's a different index of refraction. It's a lower index of refraction, so it's a shorter k vector. However, the longitudinal component has to be the same. So beta up here has to be the same as beta down there. Why is that? Uh, Snell's Snell's law does say that, but you can probably start with something more fundamental and state that and then derive Snell's law. So what does beta tell us? high value of beta, what does that tell you about the wavelength in the uh, the distance between wave fronts as they propagate down the waveguide? What does k tell us, the propagation vector, what is its magnitude? I said, write an expression for the magnitude of k. Let's let's remind ourselves that an electric field propagating in the z direction can be written as Wave like that. What do we call omega? The frequency. So if omega is the frequency, how many cycles there are per, in this case, 2 pi seconds? k is the number of cycles per 2 pi meters, it's the spatial frequency. So Beta tells us about the frequency of the, the wave in the transverse direction. So if you were to take a slice through the, through the, um, sorry, through the longitudinal direction, and measure the electric field at every point, and plot the electric field as a function of Z. beta is um, how many of these cycles you can fit in a unit length. Okay, so let's say each peak corresponds to a a wavefront. The wavefronts would look like this, propagating in the core. Uh, What happens to those wavefronts when you get to the substrate? They stay the same. The distance between the wavefronts stays the same. Now, let's say we've got uh, high index and a low index and light getting refracted at the interface. That's Snell's law. We know that going into a higher index, the waves get closer together, the wave fronts get closer together, but the ray also gets bent. So it gets bent in such a way that the wavefronts are continuous across the interface. Okay, physically, the wavefronts have to be continuous across the interface. You can't have, well, by definition of what a wavefront is, it's a continuous surface. Okay, so beta has to be continuous across the interface. That's why I just wrote beta and didn't call that beta in the core and that beta in the substrate. They have to be the same value. If they weren't, our wave wouldn't be continuous. We wouldn't have uh, wave fronts. But because the value of the K vector changes, the value of alpha is going to be different. So we have a different alpha in the core than we do in the substrate. And in order to have total internal reflection, total internal reflection means there's no allowed solution for propagation in the substrate. And that will happen when beta is larger than what the k-vector has to be in the substrate. So if beta is larger than some value of the k-vector in the substrate, there's no angle it can propagate such that the z-component of the k-vector in the substrate equals beta. The z-component can never be larger than the, the magnitude of the vector. So beta can never be larger than NSK0. And if it has to equal the beta down here, if the beta down here is larger than NSK0, you can't get propagation in the substrate. You have total internal reflection. Yeah, these dotted lines represent the wavefront. But that's because uh, I'm considering a mode that's propagating in this direction. So I can think of it as rays bouncing back and forth, but the net effect is propagating in that direction. So the net wavefront and the superposition of all those rays has to be perpendicular. Okay, so... Total internal reflection requires beta be so large that there's uh, no possible angle in the substrate that can satisfy this triangle, that can produce this triangle. The Z component is larger than the hypotenuse. So that is one of those two constraints. That is Beta is larger than this. Omega over C is the K-naught. It's the magnitude of the k vector. So omega over c times ns is the k vector in the substrate. So saying beta has got to be greater than the k vector in the substrate says the light can't propagate into the substrate. Total internal reflection. However, beta has got to be less than or equal to the k vector in the core in order to have propagation in the core. Um, Beta is the z component of the k vector. So it's got to be less than or equal to the k-vector in the core. And that's this expression, that relation right there. This is the k-vector in the core squared. Beta's got to be less than that. Okay, so let's consider... A waveguide with, uh, I think for our example, we're going to consider this, the two substrates identical and the core being a higher index region. And we'll let the thickness be D. And in this example, propagation is along Z. The waveguide has translational symmetry along Y. And so the substrate, or the index varies along X. Let's ask what the modes look like. And so you can sort of see a, a hint as to what they're going to look like It's drawn in into the picture. Let's use our wave equation to calculate what those modes will look like. Okay, so here is the wave equation, now written in terms of beta. And I'm calling omega over C. I'm now calling k naught to simplify the expression a little bit. And we have different values for the index in region in material 1, a different value for the index in material 2, and in material 3. So this is the wave equation in material 1, this is the wave equation in material 2, and that's the wave equation in material 3. Um, so using the constraints on alpha and beta that we had before, if we look at... Um, increasing values of beta. When beta is very small, that means the rays are propagating at very steep angles. And if that's the case, they're unlikely to be totally internally reflected. And so the solutions to these three wave equations look like this. They look like propagating radiation fields in the transverse direction. So basically you've got a waveguide, you shine a light through it sideways, and it goes right through the waveguide and isn't guided because you're not shining it along the axis. That's the case when beta is small. Um, when beta is very large, the solutions aren't physical. If beta is larger than okay We don't have physical solutions. What we get is exponential growth into the substrate, so that's not physical. And for the values in between, we get various uh, mode shapes that look like this. Exponential decay in the substrate, a maximum value for the electric field in the core, which were our two constraints that we had. And as beta gets larger and larger, the rays are at greater and greater angles. Um, sorry, as beta gets smaller, the rays are at greater and greater angles. So if we have a ray that is totally internally reflected but is sort of zigzagging quite a bit as opposed to one that's following the axis more, the one that's zigzagging, we're going to have multiple rays that are essentially counterpropagating, producing standing waves. That's what this is. That's the interference of of waves that are counter propagating in the uh, x direction. Whereas if beta is large and is primarily propagating along the core, we don't have that amount of interference and we get solutions that look more Gaussian. Okay, so we have an exponentially decaying field in the substrates. We can write that like some amplitude that exponentially decays, and above the slab waveguide, as x gets greater and goes to infinity, that should exponentially decay. So we write it as e to the minus some decay constant times x. And we'll let a be the amplitude at the interface, where x equals d. So we'll start our exponential decay at x equals d. Below x equals 0, we're in the uh, material 3, another substrate. So we again have an exponential decay. And as we go negative in x, we should get decay. So we'll write that as some amplitude, some initial amplitude with an exponential decay rate of gamma. And we don't need a minus sign, because x is going to be negative in that region. And in between, we said we should have oscillating uh, field amplitudes. So we can write an arbitrary oscillating function, some cosine and some sine. Alpha over the transverse propagation vector. So it's the um, component of the k vector in the transverse direction. So it's a spatial frequency in x. So we write a cosine wave of spatial frequency alpha, a sine wave of spatial frequency alpha. And those can have arbitrary amplitudes. And now what we'll do is we'll require that the field be continuous at both interfaces. And that will set some constraints on what a, b, c, and d are. And then we'll require the power in the mode be equal to 1 Just normalize the mode, and that will set another constraint on what what A, B, C, and D are, and we can get numerical values for those. Okay, so if the fields have to be continuous across the interface, and in the core we have this form, then evaluating this, let's say at the lower interface where x equals 0, the sine term goes away, and at x equals 0, the field in the core is just going to be B. And so the field in the substrate below the core, that's this one, should start from an amplitude of B and then decay away. And likewise, at x equals D, we just plug in D for x, and we get the field amplitude at x equals D. And that field amplitude is in parentheses here, and that's the starting point where the, the field will decay in the substrate above the core. So we've eliminated A and D in that expression. And now we have these three wave equations for how the wave propagates in the substrate, the core, and the other substrate. And we have these three field amplitudes that we can plug in to these equations. And that will give us the constraints on alpha and gamma. So we've already sort of uh, inferred what these values should be. Alpha is the transverse component of the propagation vector in the core. So this is a propagation vector in the core. This is the longitudinal component. So Pythagorean theorem tells us that this is the expression for the transverse component. Um, And likewise, if we do the exact same thing in the or in the substrate, we get the same value except we have N sub S. And we argued that alpha would be imaginary. So the imaginary part of it we call gamma. So the exponential decay is just the ima- imaginary part of alpha evaluated in the substrate. And that's, that's this expression here. So it's just, I flip the order of these so that instead of getting an imaginary term, I get, I get a real term. Okay, so if we know beta, which we can find from the self-consistency equations, inverse component of the k vector, and we know the k vector because we know what frequency light we're using, then we can evaluate alpha and gamma and once we know those, we can write the mode amplitude as a function of position. We know what the shape would look like. Okay, now, so far, we said the electric field is continuous across the interfaces. And we said beta is continuous across the interfaces. The magnetic field must also be continuous across the interface. So the magnetic field we can get from Faraday's law. We have an expression for the electric field. It's right here. It has some amplitude. It has some transverse distribution in X. And it's propagating along Z. And we're doing this for TE modes, meaning transverse electric. So the electric field is transverse to the plane of incidence. So if the rays are zigzagging in the XZ plane, TE means propagation along y, or polarization along y. So I explicitly wrote that there. And that lets me evaluate h. Okay, so let me do that. From the curl of E is minus i omega mu naught h. I can write the curl of E explicitly as the determinant of the usual curl expression. And I'm just going to call my electric field, I guess I'll call it e, and since it's entirely along y, I'm just going to write it as a value along y with no component along x or z. Okay, so that is going to give me a zero term there, and then a zero term there, and then I'm going to have a k hat times the derivative along x. And then when I go in the other direction, I have minus an i hat times the derivative along y of the electric field. And that's. got to be related to my magnetic field through Faraday's law. Okay, So differentiating this electric field along x, the mode has an amplitude that's changing along x. That's the only term that depends on x. So I have the derivative of the mode amplitude along x. And then all the other components stay the same. When I take the derivative along, did I do that right? Should that have been along z? This should be z. I don't know why I wrote When I take the derivative along z, I'm just going to get a minus i beta coming out. And the rest of the terms don't depend on z. So I solve for h by dividing by omega mu naught, omega mu naught, and a minus i. So this is my expression for the magnetic field. Inside this bracketed expression, I can recognize two parts. Um, This part in parentheses here is just proportional to my original electric field. And what I'm trying to show is that the magnetic field is continuous across the boundary. I already required the electric field to be continuous across the boundary. So I know this term is continuous across the boundary. The other term is a vector pointing in the z direction. So the magnetic field has a component along Z, It's not a transverse wave. Um, that's the first time, well, it's not the first time we've encountered waves that weren't transverse. Um, in terms of this picture, where we have rays at angles, if the electric field is transverse to the board, it's transverse to the direction of propagation, and it's direct- traverse to the Z direction. Transverse to the Z direction. The magnetic field has a component that points along Z. And when these rays crisscross, there will be a net Z component to the magnetic field. Okay, so in a waveguide, you get um, some longitudinal component of the electric or magnetic fields. If it's The electric field is transverse, and the magnetic field has a component along the direction of propagation. We call that a TE mode. The electric field is transverse. Um, We can also have transverse magnetic modes, where the electric field has a component along the, the Z direction. Okay. so anyhow, we need this to be continuous across the interface. And that will happen when the derivative of the mode amplitude is continuous across the interface. So um, let me go back to my expression here. If I take the derivative of each of these terms along x, uh, this just pulls a gamma out. This one just pulls a minus gamma out when I take the derivative along x. And this one, I get like alpha, I guess minus alpha b sine alpha x plus C alpha cosine alpha x. Okay, so taking those derivatives and requiring they be continuous across the interface gives me this constraint at the upper interface. And from that, I can get a relationship between the magnitude of B and C. Solve for B in terms of C. And Once I've done that, once I get B in terms of C, I only have a single constant that that gets multiplied by every one of these terms. So I can say the field amplitude is proportional to this functional form. Depending on what the amplitude of B, in this case, would be, every one of these terms would get scaled by that amplitude. And so we usually would normalize it such that uh, either such that it can be written in a convenient form like this, where the amplitude is 1, or we normalize it so that the power in that, in that uh, mode would be equal to 1 watt uh, per meter squared. OK, so these, this mode amplitude um, will be satisfied for any values of beta that correspond to the angles that satisfy the self-consistency equation. Alpha and gamma are functions of beta, and therefore, again, we have a a self-consistency equation that we can write. uh, Now, instead of in terms of uh, theta, we can write it in terms of beta. We started off with a ray picture. We moved to a a modal picture. And now we get a self-consistency equation where alpha and gamma are functions of beta. If we plot the left side and the right side versus beta, we again get points where they intersect. Those values of beta correspond exactly to these values of beta. if we plot those values of beta for different frequencies. So remember, these values of alpha and gamma were functions of beta, and they were a function of k. k depends on the frequency of the light. So if you pick a frequency, you solve the self-consistency equation for all allowed values of beta, and then you plot the value of beta you get or if you plot multiple values of beta you get. On a plot of omega versus beta, this is what you get. And there are solutions that follow these lines. And so at some frequencies, say over here, there can be multiple values of beta. At certain frequencies, there are multiple modes that are allowed. Whereas below this point right here, there's only the zeroth order mode allowed. So below a certain frequency, we say the waveguide acts as a single mode waveguide. And there's even a value below which there's no mode supported. So our initial picture from the ray optics, which said you could have a ray propagate straight down the center, actually turns out not to be uh, possible in in a waveguide. You can do the same analysis for TM modes. For TM modes, uh, because our electric field has a component that's along x, it's the electric displacement that needs to be continuous across the interface, not the electric field. Um, We get factors of n squared cropping up. Um, So for TM modes, we get a different self-consistency equation that depends on that has these extra factors of n in it. And so we get slightly different frequencies um, for the slightly different values of beta the propagating T E and T M modes. So one of the things you often want to do with a waveguide is isolate one particular mode so that the wavefront at one point is the same as it is at a later point in space. Um, and that only happens if you have a single mode. And so if we have a single mode at Z1, when we get to Z2 that mode shape gets reproduced, there's some phase shift as it propagates of beta times the distance it propagates. But the amplitude reproduces itself. Now, if you have another mode propagating as well, so let's say this is the, the zeroth mode. The first mode might look like that. We count the mode number by the number of zero crossings in the mode profile. So we have this propagating, but this has a a different value of beta. Would this have a higher or lower value of beta? It's got a higher spatial frequency in the transverse direction, so it's got a lower spatial frequency in the longitudinal direction. Okay, So when this propagates the same distance, it acquires less phase. And because they acquire different phase shifts, you can imagine a position where the difference in the phase shifts is pi. So here they are, pi out of phase. And so if your total wavefront at this point, which is the sum of these two modes, looked like this, they add up over here and they subtract over here. Then when you get to this point, now they add up down here and subtract over there. So your wavefront is not constant. Its, it's uh, amplitude distribution is, is changing. If you don't want that, um, then you need single mode operation. So for single mode operations, we need to be below this point, b- below this frequency. And we can go back to our plot of um, our self-consistency equation and say that there are solutions every, uh, roughly every d over lambda in sine theta. So sine theta needs to be less than d over lambda. And if you work out what the maximum value for sine theta can be, that's determined by the critical angle, you can arrive at this constraint for the maximum value of d over lambda. This square root of nc squared minus ns squared, that's related to the that's the numerical aperture. It's related to the critical angle. And so you either need, for single-mode operation, you either need a small waveguide or a large wavelength. The waveguide needs to be small compared to the wavelength. Okay, so here's what the different modes look like. Um, I mentioned we can count the zero crossings in order to label the modes. This symmetric, sort of Gaussian-looking mode shape we call the zeroth mode with sort of two lobes and one zero crossing. We call that the the first mode. The second mode is going to have two zero crossings, or three lobes, and so on. So you may even be able to, to imagine these higher order modes. This looks like a standing wave. It's the combination of rays that bounce up and down, whereas these lower mode numbers, the rays are propagating more along the optical axis. So there's less, uh, less rapid interference along x. OK, so um, what we're going to do next time is talk about how we generalize this to two dimensions. Uh, this was just a one-dimensional analysis today. We'll generalize it to two dimensions, and then we'll talk about specific devices that, that rely on on these waveguides in order to do interesting things. Um, what we have time for right now is first questions. Then describe how these are made. I don't have a YouTube video, but I have uh, my own attempt at it. So um, here's a couple different geometries. Here's, uh, notice it says lithium niobate that says silicon. I mentioned those are two common materials that waveguides get created in. Both of these things get fabricated as single crystals and boules and get sliced up into wafers that you can buy pretty cheap. So just like silicon wafers are used for uh, for making electronic chips, lithium niobate wafers are used for making optical chips. The waveguide can be embedded in the material or it can be some corrugated surface on top of the material. You can think of it as um, a waveguide in air. I mean, the, 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 sub, the material surrounding the waveguide in this case would be air. Um, it can exist as fibers, which are pulled. Um, and generally, the way these get formed is through this ion diffusion method. So let me describe that a little bit. This is actually a picture drawn for how they make uh, transistors. But the process is identical. Just the material changes a little bit. You wouldn't have this sio 2 glass. And this is a mask that protects the si- underlying silicon in, uh, in making transistors. For etching directly into the glass, you'd have you either wouldn't have the, uh, the silicon, you'd have the silica you'd etch into. Or if you're doing it into silicon, you wouldn't have this layer. So the first thing you do is you put some photoresist on top of your wafer. Photoresist is a chemical. It's like syrup. Put it on, spin it to make it nice and smooth. And that turns your object into film. Basic, photoresist is basically the same chemical that's embedded in, in film. So it ex- gets exposed to light, and it changes its chemical properties. So you need a mask. So If you're just doing this yourself, you can literally draw the mask on a transparency. You can print it out with a printer. If you need very high resolution, you could have this um, made with electron beam lithography or something like that. Um, So you have a mask. You have some ultraviolet light source that can be a desk lamp. And when it shines down, light goes through the transparent regions of the mask and exposes the photoresist underneath. So what you're left with is exposed photoresist when you develop that the regions depending on the photoresist either the exposed regions harden or the unexposed regions harden and the remainder can be uh, removed with acid and when that etches through the photoresist it then can if you choose the acid correctly can also etch through the underlying layer and then you have the ability to Um, deposit material on the underlying layer only in the regions that are exposed. And so if you're doing a transistor, you implant boron into the silicon. If you're doing waveguides, you would implant hydrogen into the material. So you just put some acid. Acid has free hydrogen atoms, free hydrogen ions, free protons. So let's pretend these little red balls represent uh, the excess hydrogen atoms in an acid. Um, They're only going to be at the interface where you've developed your your material. You then heat it up, and in the process those diffuse in, and that increases the optical density here, increases the index of refraction. And it has some profile given by the dynamics of the diffusion process. It's not a smooth interface, it's it's not a, a sharp interface, it's a smooth transition. And then you strip away all the other stuff using various chemicals. OK, so that's where we'll stop today. And next time, we'll just expand this to, uh, to the two-dimensional case and, and develop some applications.